you guys can turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. This is the beginning of Holy Week for us. We are going to spend this whole week thinking about what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the, in, in the resurrection. And so today, this Sunday, we're going to focus in depth on the death of Jesus. We're going to really look at that intensely. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we'll look intensely at the resurrection of Jesus and what that means. And just as a reminder, this Friday here at Southwood, we'll gather together for Good Friday service. We'll celebrate what Jesus did. We'll remember it. It's a really special moment. We're having two services this year because it's been so packed out in the last few years. So 4.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. You can join us at Southwood for Good Friday service. So this morning we're going to look at this passage in Mark 15. If you'll look with me starting in verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that is Pilate, the governor of Judea, he used to release for them, the Jews, any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him, Pilate, to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, that is Jesus? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. We meet a guy in this passage that we don't really know much about. His name is Barabbas. We know he was a Jewish man. We know that he was a criminal. He had committed a number of crimes everywhere he's talked about. There's some crime associated with him. Here in Mark, he is called an insurrectionist. Insurrectionists were political terrorists in first century Judea. They were Jewish men who wanted to overthrow Roman rule and they used violence to that end. So they murdered people and we're told actually in the book of Luke that Barabbas himself had murdered people in this cause of the insurrection. And so we know that Barabbas is a bad guy. He's a murderer who deserved punishment. And according to Roman law, the prescribed punishment was crucifixion. He actually deserved to be crucified. Jesus, on the other hand, the other key person in this account, Jesus did not deserve to be crucified. Jesus was innocent. You can tell that by Pilate's question. He asks the crowd, why? What evil has he done? It's a rhetorical question. Pilate knew he had done no evil. Pilate actually says in Luke's account, I have found in Jesus no guilt deserving death. He was an innocent man who didn't deserve punishment. And yet out of fear of the crowd, because Pilate was a coward, he was afraid of of a possible revolt. He gives in to fear of the crowd and makes an exchange. So he exchanges Barabbas for Jesus. Barabbas, who deserved to be executed, goes free. Jesus, who deserved freedom, gets executed. And what's fascinating is that as best we can tell from some ancient accounts, Barabbas' full Jewish name was actually Jesus Barabbas. 
So quite literally what's happening here is Jesus Christ the innocent is dying in the place of Jesus Barabbas the murderer. And actually more than that, as best we can tell, we can't prove this, but we believe Jesus was actually crucified on Barabbas' own cross. Because it, it took time to prepare a crucifixion. The, the ground was very rocky. You could not just take a cross and put it in the ground. Actually, in, in common pictures, we see like Jesus carrying a cross. That's not how it worked. You took the vertical beam and you built it into the ground. So that would have happened days earlier. There would have been these vertical beams rising out of the ground. So so there's these three beams when Jesus is, is, when he is declared condemned, when he's going to be crucified, he's a last minute addition to this day of execution. They would not have had time to create a cross for him. They needed one that was ready. Whose was ready was Barabbas's. Jesus didn't carry the vertical beam. He carried the horizontal beam to Barabbas's own cross and was crucified on it. So Jesus Christ was literally crucified on Jesus Barabbas' cross in his place so that Barabbas could go free. Now that's very interesting history. But what does that have to do with you and I? Well, according to this book, from cover to cover, the consistent message of this story is that Barabbas was not the only guilty person to go free on that day because of Jesus' death. The clear teaching of this book is that we are all Barabbases and Jesus was crucified on our crosses. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved in our place. Theologians call that idea the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That's a mouthful. It's a really complicated thing to try to remember. Substitutionary atonement is what you call all of this stuff wrapped into the cross. What was the death of Jesus about? The substitutionary atonement. It's really hard to remember, but it's really easy to explain. Here's the basic idea. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross means that we deserve punishment, but Jesus took it for us. That's what the cross is about. It's not about Jesus dying. Everyone dies. There's nothing remarkable about that. What the cross is about is that Jesus took the punishment for sin that we deserved. He died in our place for us so that we could go free. What Jesus did for Barabbas, he did for you and me. That's so important that we're going to camp here this morning. We're going to take the whole morning to try to unpack this truth. So we'll look at both parts of that statement. We deserve punishment. We'll unpack that and prove that. Then Jesus took it for us. We'll unpack that and prove that. I I want to camp here because this is so crucial to your life now and forever. Okay, so let's, let's start with the beginning. We'll start with the first half of that phrase. We deserve punishment. This is not at all what any of us want to talk about this morning. This is not the fun part of this sermon. This is an incredibly offensive thing to say. It's not popular at all, this idea that we all deserve punishment. Why would God want to punish us? Well, the answer is he doesn't. God's not a sadist. 
He didn't create human beings for punishment. That wasn't the idea. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. What did God create humanity for? Blessing. He created Adam and Eve to walk with him in the Garden of Eden, this paradise in the cool of the day. He created humanity to enjoy and rule his creation. That was what God wanted. That was what Adam and Eve would have had for all of eternity if they would not have sinned. But they did. They chose to sin even after God had warned them. If you disobey, you will surely die. In Hebrew, it says literally, you will die, die, which means much more than physical death. You will die spiritually. The moment you sin, you will be separated from God in this life and the next. That's what Adam and Eve got as a, as a penalty, as the, the wage of their sin. They earned eternal separation from God. Now, man, that seems harsh. I mean, all they did is take a piece of fruit. Why would God levy such an incredibly harsh punishment upon their sin? The answer is because he must. There was no other way. You see, our God is holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly true. He is perfectly just. And so he cannot overlook sin, even a little amount of sin. He, he can't dismiss it. He can't sweep it under the rug. That's why it says in Psalm chapter 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That's just a statement of reality. Evil, sin, it can't dwell with God. He can't accept it. So when we think about God punishing sinners, it's not because he wants to. It's simply because those sinners chose a path that necessarily results in them being excluded from the presence of God forever. That's what Adam and Eve got for their sin. That's what all of us get for our sin. The result of sin is eternal separation from God. Not just for the big sins. But for all sin, it tells us in James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now let's be sure we understand. James is not saying that the consequences for all sins are the same. They're not. The consequences of different sins are different. The consequence of lying is different than the consequence of murder, right? You lie and you're in trouble with your spouse. You murder someone and you're going to prison for the rest of your life. The consequences are different, but the guilt is the same. Any sin, any evil results in separation from God now and forever. If you break any law of God, then that evil means you must be separate from the perfectly holy and righteous God we worship. There's no way around that. And, and we have to, to clarify this. We have to talk about it because it is so radically different from how our world thinks about good and evil. Our society, if, if you were to ask, it's the average person in our society, how do you know if you are good or bad? What are they going to do? They're going to compare themselves to other people, typically the worst people, right? So, from our society's perspective, how do I know whether I am a good person or a bad person? Well, let's see. I'm going to compare myself to 
Hitler. I've not murdered anyone, so I'm better than him. And I'm going to compare myself to El Chapo. I have not trafficked drugs, so I'm better than him. I compare myself to the worst of humanity and conclude, I guess I'm not that bad after all. But that's not how sin works. Did you notice Psalm 5? It it did not say that murderers and drug traffickers may not dwell with you. It said evil. Any evil, any sin may not dwell with you if you have committed any transgression of God's law. By necessity, you cannot be with him in this life or the next. That's why Paul concludes in Romans 3, for all of us have sinned and therefore all of us fall short of God's glory. All of us earn eternal separation from God because of our sin. That's the bad news. We deserve punishment because we chose sin. Now for the good news. Now for the fun part of this sermon. Jesus took our punishment for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dying on Barabbas's cross as well as each of our crosses. He took our punishment in our place. That's why theologians call this the substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. Okay, so Jesus being our substitute, taking our punishment for us. That concept is actually woven all the way through the Bible. The idea of a substitute for sin, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We've, we've seen it quite a bit over the course of this year. We can go all the way back to Genesis 22 when, when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. What does God do? Well, God provides a ram caught in a thicket to be sacrificed in Isaac's place so that Isaac can go free. That's what substitution looks like. Something else suffers for you so you can go free. Same idea in the Passover. So the Passover, the Israelites are still slaves in Egypt. God sends 10 plagues. Number 10 is the worst of all. It's the angel of death coming and putting to death all the firstborn sons. Problem is the Israelites are still in Egypt. So how can their firstborn sons be rescued? Well, God says you take a lamb and you sacrifice it and you paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home and the angel of death will pass over and your son will go free. But there's an important caveat. That lamb you sacrifice must be spotless. Can't be weak, can't be lame, can't be sick must be a perfect lamb to substitute for your oldest son. So that idea of substitution through animal sacrifice, it begins in Genesis and Exodus, and then it's woven into the whole religion of the Old Testament. God reveals in the law this whole system of animal sacrifice to substitute for human sin. And so the Israelites sacrifice countless animals, bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and all these different animals. The the caveat again, they had to be perfect. They had to be spotless. The animals were sacrificed for Israelites um, for different sins at different times of the year. The most important of all the animal sacrifices though is the day of atonement. It was this, this day once a year where all the Israelites would gather in Jerusalem and two goats would be sacrificed in their place. Two goats would be a substitute for their sin. So let me read to you about the Day of Atonement. Really important. Most important day to a Jew in the whole Old Testament. Aaron, the high priest, shall cast lots for the two goats. 
one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So what he's saying, two spotless goats are brought before the high priest. One of them is sacrificed on the spot and the blood is sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice for sin. The other becomes a scapegoat. And we learn more about the scapegoat in the next few verses. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the the live goat, the scapegoat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. The idea is that after sacrificing one goat and sprinkling its blood on the altar, Aaron lays his hands on the scapegoat and confesses all the sins of the people on that goat and the goat carries their sin into the wilderness where it dies. Send it out in the desert, dies of lack of water and food. It dies the death they deserved. So all the way through the Old Testament, the Israelites sacrificed countless animals for their sins. And yet even in the Old Testament, the Israelites knew this really isn't enough. They knew animals really can't substitute for humans. An animal can't die for human sin. That's why in Isaiah 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. God was fed up with all their sacrifices. Why? Because all of those animal sacrifices, they couldn't fix the sin problem. They could not take away All of those sins. Why? Hebrews 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal cannot substitute for a human. We needed a better sacrifice. We needed a human to substitute for human sins. And that's what God promises in the most important passage, probably in the entire Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was written about 800 years before Jesus showed up. It's all about Jesus. Isaiah didn't know the name Jesus yet. He knew that this would be God's servant. This would be God's Messiah who would come and and live a perfect life. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 9, He, my servant, that's Jesus, had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In other words, Isaiah is saying he won't deserve to die. He won't deserve punishment because this servant will live a perfect life. And that's important because remember, the substitute had to be spotless. If Jesus ever sinned, then his death does nothing for you. He had to die for his own sin. Now, Jesus lived a perfect life. That's why all four of the Gospels talk about Jesus going off into the wilderness and being tempted by Satan for 40 days. And how did Jesus do? He passed the test. Only human being ever to pass that test, to live a perfectly righteous life. And so Jesus did not deserve to be punished, but he was. We're told in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus was punished by God and and everyone knew it. That's why Isaiah said, all those who are looking on will conclude he's being smitten of God. That's just a fancy way of saying he's being cursed. Jesus' peers would conclude as he hung on the tree, clearly that man is being cursed by God. So was Jesus cursed by God the Father? The answer is yes, but not for his sin, for our sins. Jesus was literally cursed by God the Father on the cross. And Isaiah drove that home with those four words that he used to describe Jesus' death. He was pierced. That's run through with a spear. He was crushed. That's pulverized, trampled. He was chastened. That means punished. Jesus was literally punished by God the Father. He was scourged. That means wounded or slashed. Why would all this happen to Jesus? For our transgressions. Not for his sins, but for our sins. All of the punishment fell upon Jesus. He took our punishment and our place so that we could be healed. So that we could have peace with God. And and that truth is beautifully illustrated in this metaphor at the end. Where we are sheep and Jesus is our shepherd. So in this metaphor, let's just be clear. We all are stupid sheep. How do we know we're stupid? Because we wander away. We wander from this good shepherd who wants the best for us, who's watching over us. We choose to wander away, and the penalty of wandering away is punishment, and yet the good shepherd takes it for us. Notice there at the end, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, on Jesus. Fall on is not nearly a strong enough translation of the Hebrew. It's literally attack. It pictures a predator attacking him. So let's put the metaphor together. We're the stupid sheep who choose to wander away from our good shepherd because we want what we want in our foolishness. And what is the inescapable result of wandering away from your good shepherd? Well, you're a sheep now without a shepherd and so you're an easy target. And so a predator comes after you. A lion is coming after you. That is God's punishment coming to attack you. And you're a sheep. There's nothing you can do to fight off a lion. And so at the last moment, the good shepherd walks and stands in front of you and takes that full frontal assault of God's punishment in your place so that you can go free. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And I love this metaphor of, of him as a good shepherd because it, it shows us this was his choice. No one made the shepherd do this. No one made Jesus go to the cross. Not even God the Father. It was Jesus's absolutely free choice to go to the cross and die for our sins. It tells us in the book of John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is his choice. This is what he wants to do. Why? John 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Why did Jesus choose the cross? The answer is for you. Out of love for you, the good shepherd willingly chose to take the punishment you deserved. He took it in your place out of love and it worked. 
Jesus' substitution worked. And so towards the end of Isaiah 53, we're told, having suffered, he, that is Jesus, will reflect on his work on the cross and he will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many for he carried their sins. Isaiah is telling us that today, 2,000 years later, As Jesus sits next to the Father in heaven and looks back at what happened to him on the cross with all the pain, with all the suffering, Jesus feels nothing but satisfaction. He he feels joy as he thinks about the cross. He remembers how painful it is, but he feels joy. Why? Because the end, because he understands that by going to the cross for us, he has made it possible for us to be acquitted. That's a legal term. It pictures a courtroom. What does it mean to be acquitted by the judge? It means the judge bangs his gavel on the bench and says, not guilty. You are not guilty, but you are guilty, right? You sinned. You did evil. You deserve punishment. But Jesus took your punishment in your place. And the result is God can say, you are truly acquitted. You are truly not guilty. Jesus carried all our sins on the cross and that's what it made it possible for us to go free. There's a story told from years ago about a leader of the Cossack people in Asia who passed a law that any thief who is found guilty of stealing food will get 30 lashes on his or her bare back. Some time passes and a thief is brought before him who's caught red-handed and the cloak is removed from the thief's head and it turns out It's his own mom. And so now he's caught in a dilemma. See, he loves his mom, but he has to uphold justice. If he compromises on the law, we call that corruption. The root of corruption destroys society. So what is he going to do? How can he have both love and justice? Well, he steps down off his judgment seat and removes his shirt and wraps his arms around her And says, punish her. And all the punishment falls on his back. She goes free without a bruise. But justice is upheld. That's exactly what happened for you on the cross. Jesus upheld justice and love by taking your punishment in your place. That's the meaning of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. We deserve punishment. There's no way around that. And so out of love, Jesus took all that punishment for us in our place. This is beautifully explained in Romans 3, which we already started reading a little while ago. I want to keep reading to you from Romans 3. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's a little complicated. I want to explain it to you and help you with it. But it's beautiful. So Romans 3, we'll start again in verse 23, which we've already read. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve punishment. But being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified, that's the word acquitted. It means that God declares you who actually is guilty to be not guilty. And it's done as a free gift. You get acquittal as a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't work for righteousness. You don't try to do good things so that God will say, ah, you're really not that guilty. No, it's a free gift. You just receive it. How? Because Jesus made it possible for you. Jesus, by dying on the cross, has redeemed you. He has purchased you out of the penalty of sin. Now, how did all that 
work? How do you, a sinner, get to be declared not guilty through what Jesus has done? That's what Paul explains next. Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. That's a mouthful. There's a lot going on there. It's complicated, but I got to explain it to you because this is incredible. Let me explain the underlying portions here. The sins previously committed, that's all the sins committed before the death of Jesus. All those sins committed in the Old Testament and during the Gospels that they sacrificed all those animals for, the animals couldn't take away the sin, right? An animal's not an appropriate sacrifice for human sin. So all those animal sacrifices could do is kind of cover over the sins for a little while. But God is patient. And so for all of those centuries, God passed over the sin. But he knew it's still, it's got to be dealt with somehow. They needed a better sacrifice. That's Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross did what no animal sacrifice could ever do. He propitiated the wrath of God. That's a big word, propitiation. You don't say it every day. You don't think about it that much. That word is more important to your eternity than you can possibly fathom. Propitiation means to satisfy or absorb the wrath of God. It means to satisfy or absorb or take the righteous punishment of God upon sin. That's what wrath is when we talk about the wrath of God. It's simply God's punishment of sin. And so what this passage is saying is that as Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing all the punishment that God had to pour out upon sin. God must be just. He had to punish sin, and so Jesus took it all. And so when you think about Jesus on the cross, what is he? He's like an infinite sponge, just absorbing all of the wrath, all of the punishment of God upon all human sin, past, present, and future. It all falls upon Jesus and he absorbs it all so that we can go free. And the result is the next part of the passage. So that he, that is God the Father, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a magnificent wordplay. Jesus died on the cross so that God the Father could be both just and righteous and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. What Paul is saying is God, in a sense, had a problem. Without the cross, he could have exactly one of those. He could be just, that is, he could be righteous. He could uphold justice in his universe, but then we would be condemned. Or he could justify us who are actually sinners and then there would be no justice and God would no longer be righteous. So how could God have both justice and love through Jesus? He died on the cross to take the full punishment of God upon human sin so that God the Father can uphold both love and justice. God can in love declare sinners who are not righteous to be righteous in his sight because his son took all the punishment we deserve. That's what the cross means. That truth is what won my wife to Jesus. My wife, Julie, she grew up in a church that wasn't entirely clear about this. And so she heard and believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, but it had no connection to her own life. 
She didn't see any line between what Jesus did then and her living now. She still thought that to get to heaven, she had to be good. She had to be a good girl. She had to be nice. She had to be better than most people. That's what God expects of you if you're ever going to get to heaven. Until one day when she was in high school, she went to Pine Cove. And at Pine Cove, for the first time, she heard that what happened 2,000 years ago was actually for her. It was the first time where it dawned on her, wait a minute, when Jesus died on the cross, that was actually for me, for Julie. He went to my cross. He died in my place. He died for my sins so that I could have eternal life as a free gift. That was just overwhelming to her and she trusted in Jesus on the spot. That's the good news that we call the gospel. You don't have to be a good person to get to heaven. That's not what it's about. Getting to heaven is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. When he went to the cross, he took all of your sin upon himself and absorbed all of the punishment that you deserved. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and now offers to you eternal life as an absolutely free gift. Nothing you have to do for it. You just have to say, yes, I want that. Thank you, Jesus. You just have to receive it. It's a gift. And so this morning, as you think about your relationship to God and and your hope for whatever's coming in the next life, I want you to really ask yourself, I want you to really, what are you trusting in to make you good enough when you stand before God? Is it something that you bring to the table? So the fact that you're at church this morning, Is it the fact that you're better than most people? The fact that you give a lot of money to poor people? What what is it that you're trusting in? If you're trusting in anything that's about you, it's not enough. Because all the good stuff in your life cannot change the fact that you're a sinner who deserves punishment. God isn't looking for you to do all these works. To get into heaven and be right with him. No, Jesus has already done everything you will ever need. He did it on the cross and he offers it to you for free. And so if you were to stand before God today and want into his heaven, the right answer to the question, how do I get in, is through Jesus. It's through the blood of Jesus. And that's what we're going to sing about in a moment. If the band wants to come up, the only way to respond to this is in worship. It's to give thanks. That's actually what all of the Holy Week is about. This whole week If you have trusted in Jesus at some point in your life, I hope that this whole week will be about gratitude. That this whole week, from Sunday to Sunday, every day you will take time to give thanks to Jesus for absorbing the punishment of sin you deserved. I hope you will join us for Good Friday service. And reflect deeply on what Jesus suffered for us. I hope you will come back for Easter Sunday. And celebrate what Jesus won for you when he rose from the dead. I hope you will give thanks this entire week. We're going to get you started by singing a song together that Trey and I chose specifically. It's called Nothing But the Blood. And it's basically somebody took the theology behind the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and put it to music. That's really what this song is about. It's a perfect representation of the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so we're going to sing lines like, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Nothing I bring to God. No good I do. Nothing but the blood. When Jesus died for me, that's what washed away my sin. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All the righteousness I have in this life and the next life, Jesus earned for me. And so as you sing this song in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing. I want you to go back to where we started this morning. And I want you to reflect on the fact that based on everything we've studied so far today, when Jesus took Barabbas's place and died on Barabbas's cross, that was you. That was me. That was not just about Jesus dying. That was about Jesus being our substitute. Dying in your place as an individual by name all of your sins past present and future sins you don't even know about yet he already took them all for you out of love and died in your place so that you could go free so that just like barabbas the murderer you could have life so let's give thanks to jesus if you'll join me in prayer lord jesus we praise you and we thank you That you, out of love for us, chose the cross. No one forced you on it. You willingly chose to go there. You chose before time began, out of love for us, to suffer the punishment that we deserve. You, You absorbed all the punishment that our sin has earned so that we could go free. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on our cross. We praise you and thank you that through your sacrificial death and your victorious resurrection, you have earned forgiveness and eternal life for us. And we particularly want to lift up to you this morning anyone here who is not yet clear on the gospel. We lift up anyone here who doesn't yet believe in you, Jesus. Anyone here who who still thinks even if you exist, they have to be a good boy or a good girl to get in. We pray for anyone who's trusting in what they do. I pray, please, God, help them to see that everything they will ever need has already been done by Jesus. Help them to receive the free gift of eternal life through faith this morning. For all of us who have accepted that gift that Jesus earned, I pray that as we sing the words of this song, that we would believe them, that we would speak them in truth, that we would celebrate and give thanks for the amazing thing you did for us, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Help us never take it for granted. Thank you that you are our Savior. Thank you that you are our substitute. Thank you that you are our spotless lamb. We praise you and thank you, Jesus. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, let's sing.